Father in heaven, as we open your word, we're asking for your Holy Spirit. We want to just be honest with the fact that spiritual things are way beyond us. Like what I was reading with my family just over the breakfast table the other day, Isaiah 55 says, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. And so, Lord, we pray for not just the, the capacity to understand what words are here, but for the capacity to hear your voice. Please, send us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Let everyone say, amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and start turning there if you haven't found it already. Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you remember, Matthew, uh, the way he sets up this Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's kind of giving, um, he's, he's painting it out to be as if Jesus the King is inaugurating his kingdom. Yeah? And Matthew chapter 5 starts with this, this sense of awe and wonder. There's an establishment of the, a new way, a new way to live, the kingdom of heaven. And when you look at the bookends of these Beatitudes, what's very interesting is that Matthew repeats a few things. Actually, we'll put this here on the screen. You, you see it in verse 3 as well as in verse 10, the, the first and the last of this list of Beatitudes. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the very last Beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Did you see the repetition there? Yes or no? Yeah? Now, the thing is that when you see a unit of scripture, and you've got some repetition at the beginning and the end of it, that's usually a very intentional thing by the biblical author. It's usually a, a literary form. They call it, you know, scholars get all fancy with their words. They call it an inclusio. Can you guys try that one? Inclusio. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, so it's an inclusio, in other words, to say that everything in between the bookends of that, that repetition, is supposed to be related to that repetition. Okay, so here at the beginning, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here at the end, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which implies that everything in the middle is related to how to live in the kingdom of heaven, right? how to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting is that even within this inclusio, there's an inclusio in the inclusio. Yeah. Ooh. Try saying inclusio three times in a sentence. I just did it. All right. So if you look at verse 6 and verse 10, there's another repetition. It's not about the kingdom of heaven. It's about righteousness. Look, look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Here, there's a little mini inclusio, which implies that everything in between is related to righteousness. Everything in between is related to righteousness. And so what's interesting is that in verses 6 through 10, if you're reading with that lens on your eyes, you discover that righteousness is more than just about this arbitrary list of things I should or shouldn't do, but it has everything to do with the way we relate to other people. Do you follow me, yes or no? I don't know for you if righteousness, when you think of righteousness, you're thinking of living up to a certain behavioral standard or norm. And yes, that is part of it. Righteousness in our minds is often equated to right doing, right? 
But even more than that, righteousness is really about being in right relationship with other people. Being in right relationship. So righteousness is not just a behavioral term. I would submit righteousness is a relational term. You think about the Ten Commandments, right? The very bedrock definition of right doing, of righteousness. But really, those Ten Commandments outline how to live in right relationship. Yeah? Right relationship with God, those first four, and then right relationship with other people, the last six. You think about that. Okay, so how, how, do, I, how do I live in right relationship with God? Well, don't put any other gods before him. Right, don't make carved images, graven images, as if, that, as if to think you can limit and define who God is. D- don't, uh, don't dishonor his name, but hold it in highest regard, not just in word, but also in life. Remember him as your creator and guard the Sabbath that he has gifted us for relationship with him. That's how we live in right relationship with God. Beautiful, yeah? And then the last six, how do we live in right relationship with other people? Well, it starts with valuing the most intimate of relational circles. The, the father and the mother, the, the family unit, right? It starts with giving life rather than taking life. It, it, it's guarding truth rather than manipulating truth for your own ends. It's honoring others and appreciating what others have rather than coveting and wishing for yourself. Wow, that's how we live in right relationship with others. That's beautiful. Righteousness. It's living in right relationships. And these are the two directions of the Ten Commandments. We see it. But really, here in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to discover it's, it's actually the two directions of the Beatitudes. It's the two directions of genuine discipleship. Vertically, horizontally. Our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. And so, you know, last week we were focusing on that blessing of having nothing. The reality that in my relationship with God, He is everything. And myself is just laid to the dust. Here, as we're turning to the last half of the Beatitudes, we're looking at that that aspect of horizontal relationships, righteousness in our relationships with one another. You ready to dig in? Yeah? The first one, we're going to look at it, verse 7, right? Verse 7, blessed are the who, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I don't know what what experiences or images come to your mind when you think of the word mercy. But one of the first things I think of is that game that I played as a child where you kind of lock hands with somebody and you squeeze and you twist and you try to get them to say mercy before you have to end up saying it, right? And in that sense, mercy is like having pity on someone, uh, the, the absence of doing harm against somebody. But here we're talking about being merciful, being so full of pity that we're not just, not just not wanting to hurt, but we're actively pursuing to help. To be merciful is to be full of compassion toward others' needs. This New Testament word has its roots in a very deep, profound Old Testament word. And that word is chesed. Maybe you've heard me say this before. Sorry if I've spit in your eye about it. But, but the word chesed, it's talking about love. Actually, it's most commonly translated in the King James and New King James as the word loving kindness. Have you seen that before? Loving kindness. That word chesed, it's, it's talking about a love. It's talking about a kindness that is not just nice for, for nice 
for being nice sake, you know? It's actually talking about a mercy that shows compassion towards someone because they're committed. Because that relationship is so built upon promises and covenant faithfulness. In fact, it could better be translated as covenant loyalty. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about mercy and loving kindness. It's the kind of mercy that shows compassion, not because someone deserves it, but because someone is family. I don't know, maybe you're not from one of those families where everybody in the family deserves it. (laughs) But we do good. We show love. Not because of what they've done or how well they've been. Um, Not because we've checked the list twice or not. No, no, no. But because they're blood-related. And that's the kind of mercy that's being called for here in the New Testament. This adjective form, merciful, you know, the the noun mercy, it's used many times in the New Testament. The, The word merciful as a description, as an adjective, is only used one other time in all of the New Testament. Aside from describing the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, it's in description of guess who else? Jesus, right? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. This is the only other time merciful as an adjective is used. Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren that he might be a what kind of high priest? A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let that sink in just a moment. When it's talking about the mercy, that that attribute of Jesus that is merciful, what was it that's highlighted here? It's describing Christ who had to be made like his brethren. That's, That's you and I. He was the one who had to be able to sympathize and identify with our weaknesses. And that's what made him merciful. That's what made him a merciful and faithful high priest. Which tells me two things. That when it comes to Christ-like mercy, that true disciples express. The Christ-like mercy that that citizens of the heavenly kingdom demonstrate. That Christ-like mercy, it's stirred by two things. One, the recognition of family ties. Did you hear that? He was made like his brethren. Jesus doesn't just count us as a a nameless face. He doesn't count you as a number. He looks at you as his family. And so Christ-like mercy, it's contingent upon this sense that, wait, 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 that other person in need, they're not just Joe Schmo. No, that's my brother. That's my sister. And I'm going to be moved toward compassionate mercy. The other thing is that when it comes to Christ-like mercy, it doesn't just recognize family ties, but it recognizes a sense of solidarity. Made like his brethren. Like he, he identified, he was willing to identify with our brokenness and weakness. And so when it comes to this idea of expressing Christ-like mercy, yes, we recognize family ties, but we also recognize solidarity. That when I, when I see someone else hurting, when I see someone else in need and very weak and broken, I recognize, wait, I, I see myself in their shoes too. I've been there. I've done that. Maybe not precisely the same way, but I'm willing to identify with the weakness of others and confess, I am just as weak as he or she. I am just as broken and in need as him or her. Yeah. 
So Christ-like mercy. I mean, maybe there are people in your life that you're thinking about, man, they are so merciful. Like that, that person, I'm thinking of my wife right now. She, she, <laughs> she inspires me to greater compassion because of her endless ability to give and give. Maybe there are people in your life that have just kind of, man, they had this gift of mercy. And, and that's true, that there is a spiritual giftedness. We've kind of called it a gift of mercy. But that doesn't mean that those of us who don't have the spiritual gift of mercy have permission to be merciless. Yeah? Because every true follower of Jesus, every citizen of the kingdom is merciful. Prime example that I think of in Scripture, outside of Jesus, obviously, is a character in a parable that Jesus tells. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know what I'm thinking? Yeah. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And really, in that parable, Jesus is using the Good Samaritan as a, a uh, reflection or a representation of himself. Right? The one who was rejected by men, but yet came to give and bless and heal and make whole. And you find that parable in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, you know, Jesus, he's actually addressing this question of someone who, who doesn't want to be all that loving. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to love his neighbor as himself, even though he knows he should. And so he's asking the question to Jesus. I mean, you can turn there. Uh, we're in Matthew. Hold a finger here in Matthew chapter 5. Luke chapter 10 is where this parable is. Luke chapter 10. And, G and Jesus is dialoguing with this man. And he's, the, the man asks, well, then who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love like myself? Because apparently this man wants to restrict his love to certain few. And in Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse, I think it's verse 30, Jesus starts telling the parable of a certain man who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and on the road gets robbed, gets just beaten down, wounded and left for dead. There's a Levite that passes by. There's a priest that passes by. In other words, there are people who have opportunity, people who recognize the need but ignore it. But the one who is moved with compassion is the Good Samaritan. By the end of this story, Jesus asks the man who originally uh, asked him for an explanation. He asks him this question in verse 36. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he couldn't even name, like, he couldn't allow his lips to form Samaritan. <laughs> oh, the Samaritan was. No, no, no. It says, he who showed mercy on him. Prime example, exhibit A of what mercy looks like. And then Jesus says to him, oh, yeah, that was a spiritual gift. Only a few can do that. <laughs> no. He says, go. Do likewise. Right? Blessed are the merciful. That's what it looks like. Unfortunately, you know, uh, we, we, it, the reality is that it's easier for us to be merciless rather than merciful. You know, to walk by those in need and attend to our own agenda to pretend as if we didn't even see. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't see people who are beaten on the side of the road. I don't see people who are traumatized by the extremity of life every day. Well, we may not. But there are hurting hearts all around us if we would just open our eyes to see them. Do you, do you hear what I mean by that? Yeah? Um, in, in the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, uh, Ellen White is actually referring specifically to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. You can turn back there. 
Matthew chapter 5. But in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, notice this. She says, there are many to whom life is a painful struggle. They feel their deficiencies and are miserable and unbelieving. They think they have nothing for which to be grateful. Maybe there are people in your life that fit that description. Maybe, maybe you yourself know what it's like. You're in a season where you resonate with that description. But notice this. We don't just pass by on the other side. Oh, they'll get the help that they need someday, somehow. Now notice. Kind words. Looks of sympathy. Expressions of appreciation would be to many a struggling and lonely one as the cup of cold water to a thirsty soul. Don't sell, your, sell yourself short. Oh, I don't have a donkey to pick somebody up and actually provide for them all the way. Do you have a kind word? Do you have the capacity to actually look? Looks of sympathy. That, that, that may seem, that only takes a second. Looks of sympathy. I, I see you. You are a human. You are a brother and sister in the family of God. And then expressions of appreciation rather than judgment. Saying, like, oh man, if only you had done this, then you wouldn't be in that situation. And if only that man hadn't gone on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho at that time of day, they should have known better. Come on. I know I'm talking to myself right here. This is the mental script that I need to check and put at the foot of the cross. God, give me mercy. Give me mercy. And Jesus invites us to follow him. When Jesus invites us to follow him, he invites us to see people. He invites us to see hurting souls as family and to identify with their weakness so that we can move toward them in compassion. Blessed are the merciful. What does the rest of that phrase say? Back to Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's a, that's especially sweet for those who know what it's like to give mercy but not get it back. Have you been there? To give and give until we have nothing more to give, even when it's not reciprocated and even when it's not even appreciated. You will obtain mercy. Whether or not from the ones you're trying to give mercy to, you shall obtain mercy. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25. You can write this in the margin of your Bible. He who waters himself will also be watered. Yeah. Later on in that same book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, Ellen White says, there is sweet peace for the compassionate spirit, a blessed satisfaction in the life of self-forgetful service for the good of others. Man, so well said. Forget yourself. Lose yourself in giving to others, and you'll find sweet peace, a divine satisfaction. Okay, blessed are the merciful. That's one expression of righteousness in our relationships. What's the next one? In verse 8, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The idea of pure, you know, maybe you're thinking about things that are clean, things that are, that are without blemish, unsoiled, or, or it's not just pure, uh, you know, like pure water, pure, you know, pure in uh, physical uh, freedom from external uh, silt or, or, or dirt. What we're talking about is pure in heart, 
right? Blessed are the pure in heart. That's where purity ultimately counts. It's the hidden person, right? To be void of evil, to be completely sincere. And all of this is in the context of right relationships. Remember the bigger picture there? Maybe you're asking yourself, okay, so pure in heart. What does being pure in heart have to do with building relationships of righteousness? When I think about purity, I'm thinking about just you know, keeping my thoughts clean before God. That he, that's where he can only see. Isn't purity of heart just between me and God? I would submit to you, no. That the purity of our heart directly impacts our relationships with other people. You see, this is a call to guard the moral quality of our thoughts. Why? Because our thoughts color the way we view and interact with those around us. Just think about it. I mean, if I allow my heart to dwell on negative themes, if I allow my heart to cherish toxic or destructive thoughts, guess how I will view other people? Negatively. Guess how I will interact with them? My interactions will be tinged with toxicity and destruction. But the flip side is also true. If, I, if my thoughts are are fixed on uplifting themes. Along noble and honorable lines, it will be more natural for me to view others and interact with others in uplifting ways. Praise God. That my relationships can be, can be altered just by the way God changes my mind. Uh, there have been a few times where, man, you know, being... Being someone who was born and raised in California, stuck in the Central Valley, where I was in a valley, but I didn't even know it except for two days of the year after the rain fell. You know what I mean? Okay, maybe you don't know what I mean. <laughs> like, where, there were a couple of days where there, it was pretty hazy here. I don't know if you, you noticed that, right? And then the next day, man, you could just see the front range. Beautiful. I grew up in a valley, and I didn't realize I was in a valley except for two days of the year. When the rain fell and the smog cleared. Okay, so anyway, Central Valley. That's how it was. Now, so I've been here in Colorado since 2016, and I still cannot get over looking west. Driving up I-25, I'm just like, wow. Look at those things. And there are certain times of day where the sun is just so, you know? Um... Anyways, we can wax eloquent about the creativity of God, even in a, a, a world that is marked with sin. But um, there are certain times of day when the sun is just a Colorado sun, beautiful thing, um, unless, you're, unless you're out with, without sunblock in the summer. But um, the Colorado sun is, does amazing things with the skyline. And, and for me, who just kind of gets enamored with it all, it, it can be dangerous, right? One, because I'm driving. Um, but two, because if you stare at the sun long enough, guess what, <laughs> guess what happens? You start seeing the sun everywhere. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Like you, I mean, you can just do this with a little experiment, just looking at one source of light for a little bit, and then you start seeing, oh, God, it just, it just happened. You start seeing the light everywhere you look. And this is true with our thoughts. The more we fix our thoughts on heavenly things, when we start looking at other people, we'll see heavenly things. And this is true 
On the flip side as well. So God calls us. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. And what is the result at the end of verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, they'll start seeing the sun everywhere. And yeah, you know, maybe that line has some future promise to it. Yes, it can be understood as eventually seeing God face to face in the heavenly glories way beyond the blue. But it can also have this sense that the pure in heart have a present tense experience of discerning where God is in their life. We'll be more aware of God in our present circumstances as well as in our present relationships when we are pure in heart. And this is, a, this is a question that we need to start asking ourselves. There's a clarifying question for when we feel like we haven't seen God in our lives. Where is God? Where is God in my relationships? If, we have, if we're having trouble seeing God, then we need to step back and ask ourselves, what is my mind dwelling upon? If I'm having trouble seeing God in my relationships, man, man this relationship is such a struggle. My coworkers are giving me fits and you know, all this stuff. If we're having trouble seeing God in our relationships, I would encourage you to step back and ask yourself, not just, okay, am I following, you know, the, the communication skills that I learned? Or am I, am I doing things socially that are wrong? What, what can be corrected? No, no, no. Obviously, there may be certain things in terms of conflict resolution and listening and reflecting skills and things like that. Yeah, you can improve in those ways. But what if first we just check the vein of our thoughts. Do you follow me today? Yes or no? Yeah? What will happen is that we'll start seeing God in our relationships when we have a pure heart. So true disciples, true citizens of the kingdom who follow after Jesus, they will relate to those around us in the most pure of ways and out of the most pure of motives. And all of that results in God being the center of our relationships. That's a, beautiful, that's a beautiful experience to have. So blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. These are the first two expressions of righteousness in our relationships. The third one here is in verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. It says, blessed are the... What do you have in your Bible? Peacemakers. Yeah, peacemakers. The only time this word is ever used in all of Scripture. Peacemakers. It means a maker of peace. Huh, fancy that. A maker of peace. See, the biblical concept of peace, when we're talking about what, what it is that followers of Jesus make in their relationships, they make peace. But peace is more than just a feeling of serenity. It's more than just a feeling of tranquility. The biblical concept of peace has the idea of wholeness. You follow what I mean by that? It's, it's when nothing is missing. All the essential parts are joined together. That if there was something broken, it's been mended. If there was something missing, it's been brought back and it's found. Peace is a sense of wholeness and harmony in relationships. And that wholeness and harmony in relationships, that's what results in the feelings of peace. The feelings that we naturally associate with peace, like happiness, security, safety, prosperity. And so peacemakers are people who build wholeness in relationships. 
To be a peacemaker then would indicate that the sum total of our interactions with others, the sum total of our words and conversations with others, tends more towards bridge building rather than bridge burning. Amen. (laughs) Go ahead and put it on your Twitter account. Okay, because Twitter needs to hear this, (laughs) right? The sum total of our words and interactions, our posts, whatever, all should tend more towards bridge building rather than bridge burning. That's true for a follower of Jesus. That's an expression of rightness, righteousness in our relationships. It's a description of one who actively pursues not just my own sense of peace, but I am in pursuit of helping others experience peace and wholeness in their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. That's a peacemaker. That's a peacemaker. Like I said, this is the only time peacemaker is ever used in Scripture as a noun, as a thing, as a person. But its verb form of making peace is also used only once in Scripture. And it's in Colossians chapter 1. And guess who it's talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, Through the blood of his cross. Christ is the one who ultimately brings peace and reconciliation, not just between angry brothers and sisters, no, but between heaven and earth. And all of this by the blood spilt on Calvary's cross. Jesus is the great peacemaker. He is it. So it's no wonder, in Matthew chapter 5, it's no wonder that peacemakers will be called sons of God. Did you hear it? In verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because they're acting in total harmony with the Son of God. Being a tangible expression, an earthly reflection of the one who gave all so that he could reconcile heaven and earth. Man, when we are peacemaking in our relationships... That's who we're revealing. When we are peacemaking in our relationships, bridge building, we we become chips off the old block, right? Bearing the image of and also representing God himself. Beautiful. That's righteousness in our relationships. So we've talked about these expressions of righteousness. Christ-like mercy in heart purity and bridge-building peace. But does this mean that when we we engage in these things, when these attributes become something that are lived out in us, does that mean that every single one of our relationships is going to be roses from here on out? No. Why? Because it takes two to tango, right? (laughs) Because we can give all mercy. We can think all purity. We can extend all peace, but it may not always be reciprocated or appreciated. And Jesus is aware of this. And this last beatitude in the list here is kind of like this, uh, this, this left hook at the end. It's an odd twist. It, it's a ball coming into right field. That you're just like, where did this come from? Right? Notice it. Where are we? Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we've got three expressions of righteousness, mercy, purity, peace, but we've also got this expectation. It's an honest expectation of righteousness, and that is undeserved persecution. You see, the pursuit of righteousness in relationships may not always win the applause of man, but the promise is that it affords us the kingdom of heaven. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Praise the Lord. I mean, it, yes, it, it seems somewhat paradoxical that, you know, the, the merciful in, and pure in heart peacemakers would be rewarded with persecution. But the reality is, and you know it probably better than I, that some people simply refuse peace. Some people don't even know how to engage in ways that make for peace because of their frame of reference, because of their past trauma, because of what seems so normal is not of the kingdom of heaven. But I would encourage you not to let those experiences harden your hearts against them. It doesn't give us permission to become merciless doesn't give us permission to be impure in our thoughts toward others who are resistant. It doesn't give us permission to be bridge-burning toward them. But, on the flip side, there's a tension that we must be aware of that there may be times we should draw responsible boundaries so as to not stir up trouble unnecessarily. Do you follow me today? Yeah. This doesn't mean we become doormats for people. But in our seeking to be merciful and pure and bridge-building toward peace, to be responsible in that as well, to guard our own hearts so that we can continue to be merciful, pure, and bridge-building for others, even when there are those who persecute us. Again, the promise here is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? At the end of verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love that the promise here is present tense. I love that the promise is not just for the future. In other words, God, at present, he reigns supreme. He reigns supreme in the hearts of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This gives us the assurance of the approval of God, though we feel or are under the pressure and heat of the disapproval of men. Praise the Lord. Because we ought to live to please him and not others. Amen. And so here we are. Expressions of righteousness. You know, I mean, we talk about this expectation, but this isn't something we should pursue. Amen. Yeah. Let's not pursue and create persecution for ourselves. Let us seek and invest in expressing righteousness in our relationships through Christ-like mercy, in heart purity, and bridge-building peace. You know, as we're kind of just wrapping this up here, Maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I would like to express more of this. (laughs) But how does that happen? How does that happen? I'm not an expert, but I'll just share what has helped for me. You and I cannot make this happen. And so we must surrender to the one who can. Surrender even our relationships to Jesus. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, maybe you've surrendered your heart. Maybe you've surrendered your feelings to, uh, to God. But have you surrendered your relationships to Jesus? 
to actually bring your relationships to the cross, to let the power of the gospel that is able to save us and our conscience and, and, and to save us from our sin, is it possible that the power of the gospel can actually save our relationships too? Yes. Yes. He himself is our peace who has made the two one. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. And the reality is that right relationships like this that are characterized by mercy, purity, and peace, right relationships like that, they happen as an outflow of the previous beatitudes that we read about last week. It is the result of having nothing. It is the result of being honest with our own need. It is the result of relying upon God's all-sufficiency and not my own. And so the reality is that we can only give what we have first received. Maybe you're wanting to give more mercy. Maybe you're wanting to give more purity in your thought life toward or about other people. Maybe you're wanting to extend more peace. But you and I can only give it if we've first received it. And that may seem completely impossible because of the kind of relationships that we've grown up with. The kind of relationships that we've had all of our lives. The kind of relational patterns and habits that have been so destructive, even abusive. The reality is that maybe the relationships we've experienced all our lives have been anything but merciful, anything but pure, anything but peaceful. And we've been receiving all sorts of toxicity and abuse all of our lives. How can we possibly give that to other people? This is why we come to Jesus. Because we can only receive mercy, purity, and peace from him. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest, right? Jesus is the one who is pure in heart, free of not just immorality, but of all self-seeking. Jesus is the great peacemaker who gave all to reconcile all things to God. And he did all of this at the cost of fatal persecution to himself. He's already walked this road of the Beatitudes. Friends, we may not have received this from others, but we can receive it from the one who, who's given it all. Yeah? How many of you want to say yes to the one who gives it? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Today, I just want to invite you to be a follower of Jesus. To not just seek a, a, a rectification or a restoration of your relationship with God, but to also seek a restoration and wholeness with, of your relationships with other people. How many of you want to surrender your relationships to the power of the gospel today? Amen. And maybe today, maybe today there is a specific relationship that is weighing heavy upon you. There is a relationship that is strained that you feel like you've given all that you can. You've done all in your part and you just, all you can do is leave it to God. I want to give you permission. Leave it to God. Or maybe it's a relationship that is so strained that, that you know what you should do to build bridges. You know what you should do to think differently in, in terms of purity versus impurity. You know what you should do in, in terms of moving with compassion towards them. But you're afraid and you're fearful of extending yourself at the risk of rejection or even persecution. I want to pray that God would give you faith to trust in him to give you exactly what you need for that relationship. Is there a relationship that you want to surrender to God today? Yeah. If that's you, just right where you are, 
I want to I pray for you. Just go ahead and stand to your feet. If there is a relationship that you say, I want to bring this relationship to the foot of the cross, please go ahead and stand to your feet right now. And I want to pray a special blessing. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm there too. I'm standing right there with you. Amen. The power of the gospel is such that it not only cleanses our conscience, but it can restore broken relationships. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of the gospel. And we thank you that that when you've called us to follow you, you're not just pointing us down a road of what you think we should do with our relationships. This is a road that you have walked yourself. This is a road that you are leading us along, hand in hand, right by your side. And so here we are just standing to our feet. We are wanting to surrender our broken relationships to you. We're wanting to surrender the relationships that have weighed so heavily upon our hearts to you. Thank you, God, for being the only one who can supply all of our need. And we just lean upon you and we thank you in advance for the fruit that we will see of relationships restored. And even if we don't, God, we thank you for giving us all that we need. I pray your blessing upon everyone that is standing here, upon those who may be watching online or listening later, that you would grant them mercy purity, and peace for every relationship you've entrusted to them. We pray these things in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen.